what is serotonin? Final who is, answer. Who is serotonin? <laughs> who, is, who is she? I don't know serotonin. <laughs> I just heard of it. I'm Sienna. I'm getting my PhD in neuroscience, and I don't know who serotonin <laughs> is, and I'm too afraid to ask. <laughs> For years, we've not, we've not known. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Not Yet a Doctor, where your hosts are just a couple of fun guys. Um, my name's Sienna. I'm doing my PhD in neuroscience at McGill University. My name's Om. I'm wrapping up my PhD in biochemistry at McGill University. And regretfully, we normally have Alistair on board to chat with us as well, but instead of being on board here, he's on board a cruise ship working uh, for the... I guess for the next couple of episodes, so you might not hear his voice. Yeah, he's living the sweet life. He's living the, the sweet life of <laughs> Alistair on board. <laughs> so good for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We'd love to see it. But um, exactly. in the meantime, it'll be me and Om bringing you the topic today. The biologists have taken over. Yes, exactly. Our true, <laughs> our true agenda has been to take over like biology we put them on a boat (laughs) when we say on a boat we we kill them alistair's dead he's gone now sorry guys i hope you didn't like chemistry too much Mm -hmm. um (laughs) all right do you have any guesses about what today's episode is going to be on based on the tagline Ooh, i'm guessing Mushrooms and funguses of some sort. Fungi, sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing fungi today. Mm-hmm. Um, slash mushrooms, whatever you want to call them. Uh, so yeah, and this was inspired by the first book I read of 2022, which is called Entangled Life by, um, by Merlin Sheldrake. And it's a book that is all about kind of a broad scope of what fungi are and what they do and just kind of the wacky world of mushrooms and fungi Mm -hmm. and i wanted to talk to you about it because it was a really good book and there's a lot of really interesting things about fungi even though i know you're not a super big fan (laughs) well it's i am a huge fan the issue is my guts aren't and i am a Uh, little bit of i I would say intolerant i use allergies to get out of it but i would say i'm intolerant and they make me sick unfortunately but I love how they taste. Oh, is it mm. all all mushrooms? I have I've not been brave enough to try, but I would say like a portobello will kill me. What about like enoki? Like in I've never tried. I've never attempted to. Not even like hot pot. I'm down to try. If we're, if we're, I'm willing to risk it. <laughs> I'm willing <Wow>. to risk it. <laughs> we'll risk it next time yeah. we see each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So I wanted to just talk about some examples of fungi first because. They're really like, even though they're kind of like simple in the fact that they're all in essence made up of the same stuff and in similar ways, um, they're also really diverse and they grow in a broad range of ecosystems and environments and they make a broad range of funny looking mushrooms and they produce a number of bioactive compounds. So some examples of fungi that you might be familiar with are like yeasts, so Mm -hmm. bakers and brewers yeasts. And all other sorts of yeasts are fungi. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, morels, oyster mushrooms, truffles are all fruiting bodies of fungi. 
So these are the like uh, the pieces that produce the spores and help the mushroom go on to live a new life. The reproductive life cycle of the mushroom is produced through these like fruiting bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and some compounds that you may have heard of uh, from fungi, some ones that are well known, include taxol. Have you heard of taxol or paclitaxel? I don't know taxol, no. Okay, taxol slash paclitaxel is an anti-cancer compound. It was uh, one of the first discovered, I believe, to be produced by fungi, and it's used in treating a number of different cancers. Okay. Um, fascinatingly, at lower doses, much lower doses, you can use it to like stabilize neuron outgrowth and neuron regeneration in oh. culture dishes in vitro, and I think also in vivo in certain um, conditions. So... It's a really cool compound. It's a microtubule stabilizer, mm-hmm. essentially. So I think it prevents cancer cells from dividing. Oh, that's so cool. So in their way to like help regenerate, they also, on the other side, are inhibiting yeah. growth in another sense. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they inhibit cell division, kind of, because mm-hmm. of the microtubule stabilizing. But I'm not entirely sure. Right. Neurons don't need to divide, so it works Yeah, out. exactly. <laughs> Neurons just need to grow. They don't need to divide. Yeah. They're done dividing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, another fungal compound that you may have heard of is oud. Oud, no. I was like, food? (laughs) (laughs) O-U-D-H. I might not be pronouncing it exactly correctly, but it's a fungal infection of agarwood trees. And it's a common compound that's used in the um, construction of cologne and cologne scents. And it's got a particular, like, musky-type smell. Mm -hmm. Um, It's It's like, like, I don't know if you can think of the best cologne scents you've ever smelled but probably if there's one that stands out to you as being the best it had oud in it because this stuff smells Mm. amazing like unbelievably good okay yeah it's delicious um (laughs) oud de de low or what low de what is it oh the toilet (laughs) oh yeah yeah um and then I was going to just briefly mention too, just through the fun interest, probably not one you've heard of, but one that's really relevant to me, are fusicoccans, which are a fungal compound produced by fungi that infect peaches and some other fruits. And these, uh, you know, kill the plant. This is like a parasitic fungus. But in vitro and in vivo, they promote neurite regeneration again, and they bind to a class of proteins called 1433s. And they modulate other aspects of like cellular health in, um, in vitro, in cells, and also in, in in vivo experiments. So it's kind of interesting because obviously the compound is produced for killing the plant host as a parasitic fungus. But when you introduce it into animal hosts and like use the compound in other manners, it has a variety of other activities. And that's pretty common for fungal compounds because they're like i said there's just so much diversity in the types of bioactive compounds that fungi produce and they just have a lot of different functions yeah it's interesting how like many are like directly impacting our but uh, i guess nervous system to some degree but <laughs> yeah. i don't want to i don't want to spoil the plot in case there's more to this later but there's literally not so okay <laughs> that was it that's all i mean like there's a lot of um I, I think the problem, I didn't go into this mainly because I think the problem with it is that there's not a lot of like rigorous science and it's really hard also, I think, to dissect the science of um, compounds and dietary supplements or aspects of diet in 
you know, brain health or in cognition or in neuro anything, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously there's, um, there's a lot of companies and probably pyramid schemes that will sell you mushroom <laughs> powders for yeah. brain health. <laughs> yep. Yep. These are like common things. And like people brew like chaga tea is a very common right. one from the West Coast. So mm -hmm. this is a big deal out there and just say it's anti-cancer and, you know, um, they'll think it promotes your brain health or makes you smarter, maybe mm -hmm. more alert. That's very um, interesting. And so is there like with the new, you know, Let's get into the fun, the fun, you know, the fun mushrooms, the magic mushrooms of sorts. <laughs> you know, the, these are also fungi, right? Is that fair to yes, say? Yes, absolutely. Is... These are fungi, and this is actually one we will come back to. Okay, I... so I'm I'm gonna leave it there. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. No, there. totally. This is the one where I'm like, yes, this compound from this fungi exactly. has known effects on exactly. the brain, and if you've tried them, you know that. But, um, you know, uh, they have both short-lived and long-lived effects, and we'll talk about both. Awesome. Uh, but first, I just want to get more into, so because fungi are very, very diverse in like what they do, where they live, um, there's not a lot like specifically I want to get into, but there's a couple of kind of examples of things that they do that I wanted to talk about. So for one, I don't know if you know much about wood <laughs> plants, but tree wood is like a very complex, hard structure um, made of cellulose and lignin. And lignin is like cellulose, except much more branchy and much like kind of like a random structure of sugar chains. And so this is really hard to break down because it looks like a bunch of different things. And so if you want to have an enzyme that can like recognize it and bind to it and break it down, it's almost like too complex for one enzyme to recognize all of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So fungi are one of the few things that can decompose wood and right. specifically lignin. And the way they do this is through a class of molecules, enzymes that they produce um, and this is from the white rot fungi. So these are like a class of fungi that can break down lignin. There are other types of rot fungi that rot fungi. <laughs> 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 there are other types of rot fungi that can break down lignin. But um, some of the white rots that I wanted to use as examples include oyster mushrooms, uh, turkey tail, and also some types of psychedelic mushrooms are white rot mushrooms as well. Okay. And so they break down lignin by producing enzymes that use radical chemistry to uh, break down the complex molecules. So essentially, they produce a bunch of like hydroxide radicals, mm -hmm. and these then will attack the molecule and cause it to break down. Um, much like how cellular stress works, I guess. Yeah, they're breaking it down <laughs> with a chaotic mechanism in the first yeah, place. Yeah, exactly. So, so they yeah. applying chaos to break down the chaotic molecule. That's super And cool. that way, they don't need one specific enzyme. They can kind of produce like a bunch of these radical enzymes and just like barrage it with all of this like radical chemistry for our listeners radicals are just molecules um, that have a free electron so a single electron that's not paired up and because that electron is not paired up it's highly reactive and it'll go and steal electrons from other molecules and cause these to like decompose and break down so that's essentially what is happening in this reaction they're producing a highly unstable radical molecule and that radical molecule is going to steal an electron from the lignin that makes sense. Then do they use, like, the lignin is, like, this big polysaccharide, I'm guessing, yeah. chain of, like, energy, basically. And do they eat that? Yeah, and so then eventually they're going to use the carbon compounds in the um, lignin and cellulose to build their own mm. bodies. <laughs> That's so cool. As much as their bodies. Yeah. Okay, so there's a couple other cool additional facts to this, which is that um, 
because these enzymes are non-specific, they can also break down a bunch of other stuff that you wouldn't necessarily expect uh, fungi to break down. But this is why fungi can grow pretty much anywhere. And you hear of fungi doing digesting like really random things like radioactive materials or um, kerosene. So fungi can employ these enzymes to break down a lot of different things. And so, for instance, um, oyster mushrooms have been trained to uh, break down cigarette butts and oh. eat and bloom off of cigarette butts. And because okay. they're breaking down the compounds and molecules in these um, in the substrate, it makes them safe to eat. So it's not like the mm. oyster mushroom now is like contaminated with the toxic compounds of a cigarette. It right. is actually breaking them down and reconstructing them so that it's safe again. And so um, this is why fungi are also considered a lot in like the context of bioremediation, and especially mm-hmm. of oil compounds and that type of thing. Because if you break them down and re- recreate new molecules, those are no longer as toxic. Oh, they've also, oyster mushrooms as well can, um, oyster mushrooms. I say also oyster mushrooms, but we're never really talking about the fruiting body. We're always talking about the mycelium or hyphae, which is the broader picture of it's the real organism itself Mm -hmm. as the fruiting body is really only the reproductive structure so pretty much all fungi are just these like webs the dumb question is like the mushroom that we envision the one that like sonic is hopping on top of yeah exactly that's the fruiting body that's That's the fruiting fruiting body body. and that's where the spores come out of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i think it would have been really remarkable to see what's in the soil on that mushroom planet because that must right. have just been a massive tangly nest of mycelium which is the right. name of that root-like f- fibrous thread structure mm-hmm. that is the real fungus that's so cool and so yeah they've also been oyster mushroom fungi have been uh, used to break down glyphosate as well which is a a chemical fertilizer mm-hmm. so another interesting thing about white rot fungi Um, I'm sure you've heard of termites, which Mm -hmm. are bugs (laughs) that are particularly damaging to structures made of wood because they eat wood. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if you know of, so there's a type of termite called African macrotermes, and they build massive, massive termite hills. So you may have seen pictures of Mm -hmm. these. They're like nine feet tall. I have. Like those giant... Those giant dung mountains. Like towers of termite (laughs) hills. And they're like commonly found in West Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, These termites do not eat, like, they will chew wood and they'll bring it back to their nest, but they cannot break down wood, unsurprisingly. Very little can. What they have in their termite hills are sort of combs where they're culturing white rot fungi. And so they take wood and chew it up. (laughs) and spit it into these combs full of white rot fungi, and the white rot fungi break it down, and then they eat what the, uh, the broken down compounds that come out of that decomposition. So they're kind of like little cultivators. Yeah. <laughs> Structural symbiosis in a sense, Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And a lot, pretty much the whole fungi world is a m- mess of symbiosis. Like fungi mm. are cooperating, collaborating, and competing with like everything else on the planet constantly and in various different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very cool. So I thought that was interesting just because um, I didn't think about the fact that like termites might not be breaking down wood themselves. Right. <laughs> they might be using fungus to do that for them. Yeah. And as we know, the wood is super complex. So it's, it's got to be them, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, mm. um, so on a cellular level, what are fungi? So like I mentioned, they're this kind of stringy mycelium of threads. And when you're talking about the threads specifically, these are called hyphae. And um, 
they're kind of like strings of cells, attached cells. They grow, like I say, it's just like these white, sometimes off yellow, sometimes other colors, but just like thread-like um, structures. And if you see pictures mm-hmm. of them, it does look like spider webs or something. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned, the fruiting bodies are what you typically think of as mushrooms, like the red and white spotted cap that you would draw as a kid as like mm-hmm. a standard mushroom. The one we eat. <laughs> yeah, the ones that you would eat are just like a spore dispersal unit. These are the... Um, reproductive structures and what's interesting about mushrooms is and i'm not going to go too in depth because it's really complicated but the reproduction of mushrooms is like fascinating so Hmm. of course if you look at this fruiting body with the spores the spores are typically haploid as in they have one nucleus that has one set of genetic instructions very similar to how um, mammals reproduce where we have Hmm. eggs and sperm that are one set of genetic instructions called haploid And then this haploid spore will disperse and start to grow. And then eventually it'll meet another spore. Either a spore will land on it that hasn't started to grow, or it'll meet up with another spore that has started to grow. And if these are of different mating types, which are just uh, groupings of, or classifications for different, essentially, vexes of fungi, but there's a lot of them. (laughs) There's a lot, a lot, a lot of them. Um, So they just have to find one that's like, substantially different from itself a different mating type then these two organisms will fuse um in a sense similar to what you might see with a sperm and an egg however the point at which this diverges is the fact that when a sperm and egg merge as you know the nuclei merge Mm -hmm. and so you get one nucleus and now has two sets of instructions not fungi (laughs) they just carry around two nuclei in their cells (laughs) and like so if you have like one spore landing on a fungus that has already started to grow and produce multiple cells that one nuclei then like divides at an extremely fast rate to produce enough nuclei for all the cells that already exist in that structure and so it's like wildly weird and then every cell will end up getting at least two nuclei a lot of mushrooms like will have three or five or four nuclei like this is an example and it's kind of the standard but model but there's a lot of exceptions to the rule (laughs) in the world of fungi um but the two nuclei if they have them just two these will be uh trafficked around to all the cells and attached to each other by a structure known as a clamp so they're essentially like two nuclei hanging out but they have not merged that's super interesting. So are they almost like, I don't know, this is maybe a weird word, but like a chimera? Like, are they expressing yeah. all the things all at once in a sense? And they're they're both, they're like, yeah, they're expressing, yeah. I guess yeah, they're it kind of like a chimera. Thing. It is, and yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's also a good way to generally think about mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Because, um, yeah, mus- like fungal hyphae will fuse with each other, mm-hmm. even if they are, so like, there's a lot of like similar versus dissimilar fusion that happens and fungi have to be able to detect whether they're fusing with something that belongs to themselves or fusing with something that belongs to someone else and that's just based on a similarity index Mm -hmm. we're not exactly sure how they determine these similarity indexes but essentially they will fuse with something when they see it and then if they decide it's too dissimilar they'll just kill off all those cells (laughs) instead of like just not fusing with it to begin with so i think a lot there's like a lot of um chimerism in a sense in the fungal world um it's wild i guess when they decide to like kill off 
<laughs> the dejected or dissimilar one. It's the one that is more prominent or like more developed than the other, maybe. Or like, how does it decide? Like, which which one takes over? Which is the stronger nucleus? <laughs> That's a really good question. Does it like kill <laughs> off from both sides? It might just yeah. kill off from both sides, and then there's two separate organisms again, hanging out. So cool. Super yeah. Cool. The other cool thing about fungi and this sort of mycelial hyphal imagination is that they can grow in multiple directions at once and expand out into areas, explore them um, in more efficient manners. And so we're going to watch a video together, which I think is really cool, of a video. slime mold uh, doing this. Let's do it. So this is what the slime mold looks like. Uh, it's called the many-headed slime. It's yellow. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's cute. It likes oats. You can actually, like, if you go hiking, you can if you sprinkle oats at the beginning of your trail, um, when you come back on your way back, you might see a slime mold there. Ooh, okay. Feeding. Eating the oats. That's what it does. Mm -hmm. Um, and so similarly, a few researchers from the Hokkaido University placed this slime mold in a petri dish and scattered oats around to represent the uh, major and minor um, places in Tokyo. And oh. <laughs> yeah. the slime mold grew in such a way that it formed a map of the metro system in Tokyo and so you can watch it here as it explores out and finds those oats and then it's going to reinforce its connections to those food sources so it kind of explores in a more broad manner and then as it finds food it reinforces those and builds what looks like a metro map and it actually does really resemble well the Tokyo metro map that is so cool yeah I know and it's like blooming yeah it's moving and it's living and it's exploring mm. and it's searching um, and at the same time, it's finding these food sources and reinforcing those places. Hmm. Eaten. That's so cool. Very cool. Um, so they also have like directional memory. So if they want to go in a specific direction, they'll keep going in that direction. And so this one paper I was looking at uh, found a sort of explanation for this. But it's really cool to watch. So this is a fungal hyphal tip navigating a maze that you can see is like this like... Um, grid-like maze structure and if we watch the video it starts over here and it starts exploring and going through the maze and you can see that it could go down any mm -hmm. any path like there's a number of ways to get through this but somehow right. it manages to find the most efficient fastest path to get like essentially most diagonal through this square grid to the other mm -hmm. end and come out the other side and um what this is showing in kind of yellowish green, but you can see here that kind of traces the path it took is a mm -hmm. sort of microtubule network within mm -hmm. the uh, hyphal tip. And essentially it remembers the spots where it hit edges and is able to hold itself to those edges based on the orientation of the microtubules within its body. And that's right. how it um, sort of stays going in the same direction that it wants to go and finds its way through this maze the fastest. Serving as a guide effectively. Yeah. Exactly. Otherwise, it could have just gone down any number of paths, but instead mm -hmm. it kind of has a specific way it wants to go and finds the most efficient way to keep going in that direction. And don't worry, listeners, for y'all who cannot see and can only hear, um, we will share these videos on our social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, at NotYetADoctor, so that you can see these slime molds growing and these fungal hyphae getting through mazes in the most efficient way possible. Yeah. Getting into your bread in the most efficient way possible. True. 
Yeah, I guess bread mold is also fungi. So. Yeah. <laughs> My least favorite yeah. kind. But I guess it also makes bread, so we have to, like, yeah. accept the give and take. The yeast giveth, it can also take it away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Reconstruction and deconstruction. Oh, now we're getting into anime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Anyways, it's really cool how fungi grow, and I like to think of them, in a sense, as a lot, I mean, and I'm not just me, but a lot of people like to think of them, in a sense, as their own little living brain, because they sort of explore and make decisions at the tips that are then also somehow transmitted to the rest of the body. So, for instance, if some tips find food, then the tips near that are going to die off, and they're just going to reinforce that one tip that's found food and grow up more there. Um, there's experiments where they show that fungi remember the direction of food sources. If you place them in a new environment without food, the direction that the food was in the old environment is the direction that they grow in most, um, uh, strongly to begin with. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very cool. But I think, um, another way of thinking about it too, is that like with our bodies, we can really only do one thing at a time. Like we can walk in one direction. We can take one path at a time. But with our brains and our imaginations, we can kind of imagine a variety of scenarios at the same time and then kind of pick the scenario that we like the best and choose to go down that route. Fungi mm-hmm. are kind of doing that process with their bodies. So they're picking the other, imagining all of the scenarios, they're trying all of them, and then they're picking the one that suits them the best. Right. So living brain. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. And so the lot mycelium the vast majority of mycelium i guess live in soil and in the ground um and here's another place where they're in symbiosis with their environment so essentially pretty much all tree roots and all plant roots are interconnected with fungi as in those fungal hyphae those little threads grow in between the cells of the roots and so it's this like micro it's called a mycorrhizal network and essentially it's this like shared exchanging network of the fungal hyphae which are growing into the roots and feeding vitamins and minerals to the plants and trading them phosphorus and things like that and the plants which are producing carbon from their beautiful big green leaves and the sunlight and then shuttling that down and trading it back to the fungi and it's been Mm. estimated that for like some trees 30 percent of the carbon they produce ends up going to the fungi oh which is remarkable and a huge huge amount of it and then not only that, but there's been a lot of uh, research in the past couple decades about the fact that then <laughs> fungi are kind of like master traders. They, <laughs> they <laughs> they're like serving in a market of like plants and carbon and vitamins and minerals. And mm-hmm. so if you trace like radioactively labeled carbon from one tree, you can find it in other trees that are not connected to that tree. And the reason is because the fungi will take the carbon that's being offered by one tree and shuttle it and trade it to another tree for something else. And so it's this massively interconnected structure in the soil of like fungal mycelium, hyphae and tree roots. It's very, Mm -hmm. very cool. And there's plenty of speculation as to why this might be. Um, And there's a lot of like good reasons why it might be. So for instance, uh, for fungi, if you're thinking about it from a fungal perspective, they could be doing this because it's better to invest in a lot of different plants especially if you're planning on decomposing them later or um, just if you want to make sure that you constantly have a carbon source it's better to just make sure that all of the plants you're connected to are healthy and doing well so that 
even if one is not paying out right now, when it grows bigger and taller, then it might start paying you out in dividends. A return on investment. There's a lot of like economic <laughs> yeah. justifications for the fungal <laughs> network. <laughs> so right. a lot of people think about it, and I don't know if it's my favorite way of thinking about it, but I think it's interesting at least uh, to think mm-hmm. of it as a market. <laughs> right. The stock market of fungi. But then, um, yeah, so there's that reason. Um, and the other reason is they might get something else out of the deal. Uh, there's been evidence to show that like fungi in transporting phosphorus if they're in like a phosphorus, a low, so fungal networks can st- spread across very large ranges mm-hmm. of ground, much further than roots, for instance, from the tree. Yeah. And so if a tree is in a place of low phosphorus, the fungal network it's connected to is going to actually trade it, like it's going to get more in return per unit of phosphorus that it hands over to that tree. And they've mm-hmm. shown that fungi will traffic phosphorus from a higher concentration place to a lower concentration place to exchange to that tree. (laughs) Whereas they would get less per phosphorus unit if they're just trading it at the high concentration phosphorus location because the tree doesn't need it as much. Right, right, right. So supply demands economic situation going on here. It's literally that. And like, I'm sure, you know, there's good chemical reasons for it. Like it might just be a byproduct of like passive diffusion down a gradient. So, um, that just means if something is in high concentration in one location, it tends to move towards the area of low concentration. Mm-hmm. So the fungus might not just like it might just be passively letting that diffuse and then it just happens to get to trade it for more stuff at the low concentration area because the treat needs right. it more and is willing to give up more. But unclear, but it's kind of funny. Yeah. It, seem, it seems like mutual benefit at the end of the day mm-hmm. where, you know, hey, you're it's I know you're going to die. And, but while you're here, you might as well live the best life you can. Yeah. So it'll help. It'll help out with that. <laughs> At the end of the day, in the massive scope of the network between fungi and roots, everyone is winning. Like yeah. we're mostly getting a lot of good things. I think most of the organisms are getting a lot of good out of the system. In fact, most trees yeah. can barely live without fungi. Most plants can't barely live without fungi. So they mm-hmm. almost they're dependent on the fungi. They do a lot better exactly. with them. Um, so it's really mutually beneficial for everyone involved. There's just like mm. funny little particularities where you're like, they're playing capitalist. Exactly. <laughs> a little bit of role playing. Yeah, a little, they, they seem like they're pretty equitable. So yeah. we'll give them that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they're doing a better job of it than us. for sure. Yes, for sure. <laughs> They've lived much longer. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. And this is like so... One of the best examples of this specific interaction between plants and fungi and like the shuttling of carbon from one plant to another plant is these group of plants called mycoheterotrophs. And so these are plants that do not have any chlorophyll. So they cannot synthesize carbon (laughs) at all. And um, for our listeners, carbon compounds are the basic building block of cells of life you can't have life without carbon compounds at least not on earth maybe on other planets who's to say listen to astrobiology (laughs) it's a bit more complicated without carbon yeah but it's really complicated without carbon and especially on earth there's no non-carbon based life forms Mm -hmm. i say that with like 99.9 percent confidence but i haven't explored the whole earth there are those that can like 
help that can like supplement with other things yeah but nothing that's like independent completely yeah yeah and if you think of it like just like fats lipids are made of carbon so eventually you're gonna need a carbon compound to form your cell membrane (laughs) (laughs) anyways that's all said these plants called mycoheterotrophs cannot produce carbon compounds so they cannot produce the basic building blocks needed to build cells and so they therefore get all of their carbon compounds from other plants by way of fungi. Okay. Yeah. They're using them as like a shuttling? There, I'm not exactly sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But (laughs) these guys are just living off the system and I respect them for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a class of plants. Yeah, that's a class of plants. plants. (laughs) And they're very beautiful. They're like, Mm -hmm. they come in a bunch of different colors, except green. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they're like red and white ones. There's white ones. There's fully red ones. There's beautiful, brilliant pink ones. They're just these beautiful plants that just shoot up out of the ground. (laughs) No green, no leaves, just just flowers, essentially. Well, good for them. They found their way. Exactly. (laughs) And the last fun fact to kind of close off this section of the discussion Mm-hmm. is um, an estimation of the total length of mycelium, so of these threads, within the top 10 centimeters of soil on Earth. Okay. So the total length within the top 10 centimeters of soil on Earth of these fungal threads is to be half the width of our galaxy. Wow. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> That's it's a massive a living organism. Okay. There is so much fungi there. Um, Point, 0.5 Milky Ways? 25 Milky Ways worth <laughs> of, in the top 10 centimeters. That's not even looking at the rest of the dirt soil. Yeah. So it's it's wow. wild. And they like compose up to 30 to 50% of the biomass of soil. So like the living component of soil is fungi. Good for them. Hey, yeah. they're doing it all. They're, they're doing the trade routes. They're like making deals. They're doing it all. Good for them. <laughs> it reminds me of like settlers of Catan. It kind of is that. They're traveling between the tiles. They're offering you yeah. two sheep for their one wood. You know? like, you're not going to win the game, but you, you can but play you can for a bit. But you have some fun while we're here. <laughs> exactly. But we will win the game. We always do. We've already won. They're yeah. like one of the main decomposers of the earth. Like They're mm-hmm. winning the game whether or not you're enjoying yourself while you're playing. You know. That's true. Uh, so those are fungi. Fun facts with fun guys. Fun facts with fun guys. (laughs) So finally, I wanted to talk about two cool instances of sort of fungal interactions with living organisms, as is what I've entitled this section. And so the first one we're going to discuss, which you may have heard of due to its popular inclusion in a video game series. Oh, okay. Can you think of what that might be? This video game series? Video game series. (laughs) A mushroom? Fungi <laughs> it... infections. Oh, is it like Last of Us or something? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've never actually played it, so no. no has it. Oh I've only watched people play it. Well, that's, that's good enough. So mm-hmm. if you haven't played Last of Us, it's about a fungus that turns people into zombies. But this was based off of the very real fungus that infects insects. And there's like actually a broad diversity of fungi that infect insects. Um, but the one we're going to be talking about is called Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, but I'm just going to call it cordyceps because I'm lazy. Um, mm-hmm. And this is not what necessarily fungi experts do. This is just a mean thing. So don't like go out there calling <laughs> it cordyceps and expect to be understood by somebody who studies fungi. They'll probably be like, which one do you mean? But today right. <laughs> I'm referring to 
a few cordyceps unilateralis as cordyceps alone. <laughs> Unilaterally <Yeah>. cordyceps. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there you go. Um, so this is a type of fungi that infects ants. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, its mode of action is it um, gets into the ants through its spores that it disperses, um, will then grow in the ant's body, particularly oh, in the muscle and muscle tissue. It okay. will lead to muscle wasting, but most interestingly, it actually leads to a very specific ant behavior where it causes the ants to climb up trees quite high, to climb out onto a leaf, and then it'll bite onto like a main leaf vein, and like it's called a death grip because it cannot let go. Oh. Will not let go. Okay. And then it dies, and then the fungus will bloom out of the ant's carcass and scatter spores down from that high spot. So this is like very advantageous to the fungus because then its spores get to have like more wind travel as though it would like if it was growing close to the ground. Just rain on other ants, basically. Exactly. (laughs) No. (laughs) Rain on ant ants and the cycle continues. Terrible. Um, So yeah, this is uh, why The Last of Us used it as inspiration. It's kind of like the zombie ant fungus because it causes them to have this very, very weird behavior. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately leads to them infecting other ants, although not through the eating of ant brains. Right. Slight differences. Yes. Similar. (laughs) Wow. Similar but different. Once again, an interaction with a fungus and a brain. (laughs) a nervous system of sorts. But the worst type. Yeah. And so interestingly, some of these um, types of fungi that infect insects, they do infect the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's presumed to be how they control behavior. But with this specific example, while these fungi will can be found in the whole body of the ant in between muscle cells and like they cause you know severe muscle wasting and distortions to like components of the muscle cells that are important for um, contraction and they ultimately lead to hyper contraction of the mandibular jaw muscle which is what causes that ant to like not be able to let go of the leaf right. <laughs> um they are absent from any sort of interaction with neurons oh, okay. or with the ant's brain so this is like almost entirely seems to be mediated through fungal muscle interactions. Mm-hmm. But it's very odd because we don't understand then how it influences the ant to climb up the tree. Yeah. Um, but that being said, there's like major. So the way it's been described is it's like the mush, the fungus actually releases uh, molecules in the ant that are neuroprotective. So it's preserving the brain, despite that there's like massive, you know, cell wasting going on elsewhere. It's causing preservation of the brain and nervous system, but also um, releasing, like causing changes in the brain's own gene transcription that like alter the behavior of the ant. Huh. Okay. Okay. So it's from the outset in this scenario then. Yeah. Okay, cool. But who knows? And that's like... We're still under investigation how exactly that works, but the things, there's some evidence also to suggest that maybe it has something to do with circadian rhythm cycles and um, why, like, time of day where ants would climb up to trees, it's inducing them to think that it's that time of day or something like that. Okay. But just like a very weird <laughs> and creepy yeah. aspect of fungi. And I think I pulled up a picture you can see here this ant has bitten down 
on a leaf vein in a death grip. <laughs> and out of its head is growing the stalk of this mushroom. Indeed. This is quite terrifying. It actually kind of grows out of like the thorax area, but um, it's hard to tell in this yeah. picture. Yeah. And then it will release its spores to infect other ants. Perfect. Wonderful. Alas. Wow. Wonderful. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely wild. Yeah, that's absolutely wild. You'd never expect yeah. something like this from... Uh, well, I guess it's almost parasitic in this scenario, right? It is, yeah. ab- it is a parasitic mm-hmm. fungus. Yes, this is a parasitic one. Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever reason like it has to be it's um its life cycle is dependent on infecting the ants like it can't live outside of the ants so this is just it's this is how it lives Mm -hmm. unfortunately um depends on ants a lot of parasites are like that i guess there's been some cool sort of 3d imaging studies of what these um fungal cells look like when they're integrated into sort of the plants or plants into the ants muscle system Mm -hmm. and so here you can see an a these are the fungal cells so they have kind of these large like hyphal bodies they're called and they kind of look like yeast cells and then the thin hyphae coming off them and they kind of they're allowed the hyphal bodies to be interconnected with each other and engulfing and wrapping around this muscle fiber of the ant it's not quite right, but it's like almost analogous to like a, nucle- a neuromuscular junction, but not exactly that. But it's like yeah. around the muscle and like inducing that contraction, right? So for people who don't know, muscles are activated by motor neurons and mm-hmm. motor neurons attach to the muscles at these neuromuscular junctions, they're called, which are uh, very specialized little regions of space where the muscle sits next to the end of the neuron Mm -hmm. and it has all of these specialized interactions that go on between it but the fungus doesn't seem to interact with the neuromuscular junction nor with the motor neuron (laughs) at all it might be adjacent to that right but it really seems to cause distortions to the muscle itself and that's um sometimes it can even be seen penetrating the muscle like the hyphal tip will break the cell wall and be like inside the muscle cell creepy but not in the motor neurons Hmm. Hmm. Peculiar. Creepy. Peculiar. Mm-hmm. It's it's hostile takeover. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> They're on if strike. If anything is a corporate analogy with fungi, then yeah, this is hostile takeover. This is uh, what's, what's vertical vertical integration. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a uh, very cool, mm-hmm. very creepy, um, and very interesting. Absolutely. Ways that fungi can interact with other living organisms and then the other way that isn't really a way that fungi necessarily interact with other living organisms but could be thought of as that is thinking of psychedelic mushrooms so psychedelic mushrooms typically are referring to mushrooms that produce a compound called psilocybin and this is a known hallucinogenic psychogenic drug it is metabolized into a compound called psilocin in our blood psychedelic drugs act within the serotonergic system or serotonin receptors in the brain and because of this they've obviously been of great interest to humans all over the world a lot of uh, cultural uses historical uses have been documented i mean it's been known forever but they also they don't just act on humans it acts on other um classes of life some insects find them toxic some insects eat them and like them one type of fungus that produces uh psychedelics also produces um so it's a another parasitic fungus and it grows in the butts of this type of wasp fly i guess not i can't remember sure but a flying insect Mm -hmm. and 
causes them essentially to fly and they'll spray the spores out of their butt for the fungus. <laughs> and Love it controls that. them by producing like a combination of like a methamphetamine, 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 methamphetamines, mm-hmm. produces methamphetamine type molecules as well as uh, psilocybin. Whoa. And does this have an effect on the insect and is part of its like mind control system to cause it to fly around spraying mushroom spores everywhere? It's unclear, but definitely weird that these mushrooms are producing drugs that are known to act on brains and uh for what reason we don't really know the other thing about uh hallucinogenic mushrooms is that it's not just like one strain of mushroom or one kind of mushroom that produces psilocybin uh it's developed many many times in the course of evolutionary history in different types of fungi so there's not like one class of fungi that developed evolved at once and is responsible for all of the psychogenic effects that we can see in mushrooms a lot of different mushrooms have evolved the ability to produce psilocybin probably for a variety of different reasons uh which is cool and um it's really really cool because although you know it's hard to define um whether or not specific molecules have an effect on brain health and behavior in humans this one (laughs) definitely does and there's been not only just like kind of general research studies into the effects of it but also clinical trials because of its ability or um clinical application in treating ptsd and depression and especially um uh severe treatment resistant depression so if you've never tried a hallucinogenic drug for probably good reason because they're illegal and you don't want to get in trouble for no reason People are scary when you break the law. Mm-hmm. Um, even though certain things shouldn't be against the law, uh, they have a very specific effect on people, and it's been well documented. Which is like the uh, feeling of ego dissolution, so like the loss of selfness and a feeling of interconnectedness with the world. This is like a very well documented phenomenon when you take. Uh, hallucinogenic drugs, particular psilocybin or LSD. And the reason that we suspect this is, is because of different brain states and different connectivity that arises when you take these drugs. So um, typically when we're just existing in the world, going about our daily lives, doing random little tasks as humans are known to do, um, we're running something in our brain, which is called the default mode network in our cortex. And it allows us to just kind of like have all of these parts of our brains doing things and doing them separately and just kind of doing them without being cognitively aware of them or needing to use cognition on them. And when you take hallucinogenic drugs, this default mode network gets dampened and leads to a lot more interconnectedness between different regions of the brain that are responsible for different tasks. And this is believed to be why you start to feel, um, you know, more aware of things around you and more connected with things around you. Um, and the field of neuroscience (laughs) is foggy. It's a foggy place. And this is probably the best explanation I'll be able to give about it. But that's essentially, there's like this increase in connectedness between different sort of regions and functions of the brain that aren't there when you're normally just living your life, not hallucinating or on psychogenic drugs. Ideally. Um, (laughs) But what's interesting is like this leads to like long lasting changes in the interconnectedness of the brain that last up to six months after mm. treatment. And um, 
they also like in mice have been shown to increase neurite growth so like the dendritic arbors of mice become like larger and more complex upon treatment with this again up until like six months post treatment so this is it's it's super fascinating because like there are actually very few drugs that we know of or that we've been studied um in depth that have sort of these really potent effects on both brain function and brain structure at like cellular levels and at you know cognitive functioning levels at Mm -hmm. the levels of collaboration between brain regions so it's really really cool and exciting and um there's were a lot of studies in the 80s that were kind of sketchy that looked into lsd and its role in um I think treating PTSD and other things, but more recently there's been sort of a renewed effort to try hallucinogenics in the treatment of depression. Mm-hmm. And the results have been pretty astounding so far. Mm-hmm. There's been a few clinical trials that have published their data already. And it can lead to like up to um, like a 70% improvement, which after I think a month, which compared with a typical antidepressant that you might uh, put like somebody with severe treatment resistant depression on that leads to 30 percent improvement so this is like much much better than our top of the line applications for depression and it's also interesting because there's been studies in severely depressed patients that show that they have higher levels of this um default mode network activation and loss of like connectedness between different specific sort of regions of the brain Mm -hmm. so and then in the treatment with psilocybin, this is altered. Right. And this seems to lead to these increased, or I guess decreased feelings of depression, increased feelings of satisfaction and happiness. Right. And associated with these specific brain changes. Right. And that's not, we don't have that for other antidepressants. We don't have that sort of evidence. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating, really fascinating. And I, Um, I guess like, it's kind of sucks that it took this long for us to like play with something that we've known about for so long. And I guess the mm-hmm. big limitation has always been, I guess, the legality of it, right? Exactly. And I think um, it's one of those things that I find incredibly frustrating. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, frustrating. It makes me angry. There's a lot of drugs that have been illegal for cultural reasons, yes. especially in America and Canada. Um <laughs> like marijuana which was only recently legalized but like none of these drugs especially these plant-based ones you know mushrooms marijuana the these aren't dangerous drugs the amount that you would need to take of psilocybin to even get close to any sort of toxicity would be like a thousand times a big dose like something that you would take to get super high you need to take that a thousand times more of it to get a toxic amount (laughs) of drugs so it's not like these were um you know made illegal because of their relative safety to people it's Mm -hmm. only ever just been like a cultural it's a systemic issue let's put it let's let's put it that way of course uh you know the underpinnings of society which are colonialism and racism right exactly um and so it's it's sad and frustrating because you can there's a lot of um a lot there's some there are some like documented uses of you know, mushrooms in indigenous cultures in South America. And I'm assuming that there would have been this type of use in indigenous cultures all over the world, right? But 
and with the knowledge that you know it's not just like they documented its use but they documented its use and they they know that it leads to increased happiness increased life satisfaction increased feelings of connectedness with yourself and with others and with the planet right yeah. like in a sense it's been no it's really been known to improve human disposition and human life experience yeah. i think overall like and especially when done in combination with a community and like with people who are helping guide you through it guide you through the experience and that's been lost because of colonialism and we're only now starting to realize again white people are that like oh this is actually like a really effective and important thing for human experience like this can be a really useful tool right but well here we are now but I, and I think it's really cool that we are here now because we do have these really cool brain imaging studies too showing like these changes that happen so I think we're um seeing some exciting developments and one of the things that it is approved for is you can get a special special use for it in the case um if you're living with a terminal illness Mm-hmm. So you can be like authorized for special use and people who've done this report that it makes them feel like it gives them a lot more hope and happiness. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like end of life care, living with terminal illness, I think this is a really wonderful way to employ something that can have that effect on Absolutely. human experience and human brain chemistry. So really cool stuff happening with it. And I imagine or I'm hoping at least I think we are seeing a push towards general legalization of this type of um i mean psychogenic drugs generally but also Mm -hmm. i think psilocybin especially because of the applications it has for treatment in depression ptsd also in addiction it's really uh there's a few studies as well that show that it's effective for treating like alcohol alcoholism i guess alcohol addiction and that type of thing yeah um so yeah I just think it's cool that we have a drug that has such a major effect on brain chemistry and human behavior down the line, which is like, we have so few of these. Exactly. We have so few actual examples of these. Like, maybe lithium is one, you know. Yeah, but that's a, that has a lot of toxicity, you know. Exactly. And also, like, it has a lot of tolerance, too. Mm-hmm. It will work and then it won't, right? Yeah. And for some people, it just never works at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what's remarkable about the like psilocybin as an example of a psychogenic drug is that it works in pretty much everyone. I don't think there's anyone who takes it and doesn't have some response, right? Have some response, but yeah. it also has long-lasting effects. Yeah. Um, and long-lasting changes that are like visible by imaging and mm-hmm. imaging of the brain. So. So we just need more of this. We need more of it. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. We should take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. You, and like, I'm only imagining that the more. I mean, I'm sure my colleagues mycologists everywhere would say this and i feel like this was the impression i got from the book that i read entangled life but you know mycology the study of fungi is a really understudied um, branch of science and there's so so much to learn and see and know about fungi so i think also i you know if we support the mycologists in their endeavors we're also going to find more and more compounds that have these like incredible bioactive properties and like uses in day-to-day life and probably also if we studied closer or talk to more people from cultures who use mushrooms and fungi medicinally more often and looked into that, I'm sure we could also find historical and cultural knowledge there as well, you know, like no question. many ways to access the knowledge and the plentitude and abundance of fungal, fungal things. Exactly. <laughs> 
fungal cures, fungal compounds, fungal applications. Exactly. Good on pizza, good on neurons, good for you. Good, yeah. Good, just good everywhere. <laughs> good everywhere. Yeah. Put them everywhere. Exactly. But you got to be careful because there are some that are really not like... Yeah. <laughs> Don't go out and eat the first mushroom you see now. That was not the point of this podcast. <laughs> eat the right mushroom on the right thing <laughs> in yeah, the right exactly. scenario. <laughs> There's a funny anecdote in the book Entangled Life about this specific type of mushroom that's known to like induce comas. <laughs> so very poisonous in like a lot of guidebooks. Right. They're saying like if you read most guidebooks, it says do not eat poisonous. But I was reading one guidebook and it said this mushroom is very delicious fried in butter, although it's been known to induce comas in people of mild disposition. <laughs> and so it's like some mushrooms are very dangerous, but only for some people. Exactly. It feels a bit like a call out, right? Yeah, yeah. This might be you with your gut thing. Right? Exactly. Um, do not eat. You will poop yes. for years. Stay away. Exactly. Not good. No good. That's so... Good. Yeah, with that, I think that's my uh, close on this episode all about the weird and magical world of fungi. Um, And before we end, I would just again like to thank Merlin Sheldrake for writing the book Entangled Life. It's a really, really good book. It's highly worth reading. It's not uh, super scientific. So even if you're not into like some, like if you're not into dry stuff, this is not dry. This is moist, just like how fungus like it. So it's a great book. It's really worth reading. He, um, after writing it and publishing it, he took a copy of it, inoculated it with oyster mushrooms, let it decompose, and then ate the oyster mushrooms because he's that much of an avid fun guy. Fun. He's a fun, he's a fun guy. I don't know. Fun guy eating fun guys. (laughs) Made of his fun guy book. Yeah. (laughs) That's so cool. He made the book. Mushrooms decomposed the book. He ate the book. (laughs) It's like (laughs) the circle of life. That's awesome. That is pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's all. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been Not Yet a Doctor with another fabulous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to all of our previous episodes if this leaves you wanting more. Uh, and check us out on social media if you want to see both the images for this episode, diagrams of fungi and the videos of them navigating mazes at Not Yet a Doctor. That's on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And Or you can email us at phd32b. That's phd32b at gmail.com if you have specific questions or you just want to say hello via email, if that's your thing. We're more than willing to hear from you. (laughs) So, thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sienna. I've been Om. And it's been fun. Guys. Fun, guys. (laughs) Catch you on the next episode where we'll talk about something else.